Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 69. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. Never mind how long it was. Never mind it is how long it was. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. A quick note about my latest novel, Winds of Hope. The prequel to the Kate Nielsen series, this book is now available in both print and ebook versions on Amazon. If you order the print version, you can download the Kindle for free, a feature that's available on all of my books. You may want to gift your print copy and read the ebook copy on your device, or you may want to start reading the story before your paperback arrives. Whatever your reason, that offer is available only on Amazon. So, enough about my books. Our featured novelist for this podcast is John Wagner from Sun City, Arizona. I met John a dozen years ago when Steve and I lived in the Phoenix area. When we reconnected with John on Facebook, and where else does a person reconnect these days, I remembered that not only is he a good writer, I was always fascinated by his story topics. Today's story, The Opportunist, is no exception. Here's the back cover copy. There is nothing like living on the street in winter to provide a young man with motivation, but most people wouldn't have given the homeless waif from the isolated Appalachian coal camp much of a chance of survival on the mean streets of the city, much less of accomplishing anything. So how was it then that as he confronted life's challenges, he always managed to come out one step ahead of his adversaries, his rivals, and the system in general? Was it blind luck? Or was he on to something? Before Steve reads The Opportunist, I might add that if books were classified the same as movies, this one would likely be rated R. It's a great read, but may be a bit graphic for some readers. So this is called The Opportunist by John Clark Wagner. Chapter 2 A stream flowed peacefully much of the year through the narrow, winding West Virginia Valley in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains and past the coal camp where he was born. But in the spring, with the snow melt and the rains, the stream flooded with high drama, sweeping away everything in its path. And in the hottest part of summer, it all but dried up, revealing beds of smooth stones of every size, shape, and color, and lumps of coal which had fallen from the lumbering, heaped-up railroad cars, and which had rolled down the bank into the stream, where they were carried away downstream and worn smooth and rounded, just like the rocks. And there were sand and gravel bars revealed, and little isolated pools among the rocks with trapped, darting minnows, oblivious to their eventual fate when the pools dried up completely. The stream provided the little boy with endless fascination. He loved to swim and fish at appropriate times during the year when conditions were suitable and always under the supervision of Irene, his de facto caregiver. He loved to wade in the shallow water, to feel the sand give way beneath his feet and between his toes, and to chase crawdads, which scurried backward, their tails curled under and their pincers poised in defense, their long feelers swishing the water before them. Ironically, 
The stream was called Straight Creek, someone's idea of a joke, perhaps, since the stream was anything but straight. It snaked between the steep hills, where oftentimes there wasn't enough bottom land for the stream, the railroad spur line, and the dusty gravel highway that led to a small town 12 miles away. It was generous to call it a highway, because much of the time it was a rough pothole ordeal to travel over, until the county workers would come out, scrape it, and spread new gravel. The natives called it the pike, or simply the road. Where there wasn't room for it in the bottom, it had been blasted out of the side of the hill, first on one side and then the other, up and down and around to accommodate the terrain. The little boy's name was Robert, then, Bobby for short. The coal camp, where his father worked, consisted of dingy, coal-dust-covered company buildings clustered around the tipple where the coal came out of the hillside and where it was sorted and graded, then loaded into railroad cars called gondolas, he was later to learn. There was an office, machine shop, equipment yard, storage buildings, and a company store called the commissary, where the miners and their families could use company script to buy food and basic necessities when they were short of cash or couldn't go into town. Beyond the company's buildings, wherever there was room for them, were equally dingy, company-owned cheap frame houses and duplexes, living quarters for the foremen and company men and a few ordinary miners who had enough pull to get one of them. At the start of the Second World War, the demands of war production had brought the miners quickly into existence and kept them going three shifts a day. During normal times, a decent job was hard to come by in the hills, and young men often migrated to their industrial cities of the north and east to find work. But the war changed that overnight for many of the young men who preferred to stay home, and they flocked to the mines eager to work. Bobby's father, Elisha, had been one of those young men. He married young and brought his new bride to the mining camp, where Bobby was born in the fall of 1944. His mother died when Bobby was still a toddler, Elisha was devastated by his young wife's death and plagued with guilt. He blamed himself for her death, for bringing her to the vile place where there was no electricity then, no running water, no indoor plumbing. As time passed, he began to blame the company and came to hate it and all it represented. And in the mind of the child listening to his father, the company became the personification of evil that had taken his mother from him and made his father unhappy. Beginning then, and accelerating over time, Elisha took to drink. These profound experiences and their aftermath altered Bobby's future and laid the foundation of his perception of the world and his place in it. Shortly after his mother's death, Elisha boarded Bobby out to a widow whose husband had been killed in the mines. Her name was Sudi Messer. She lived in one of the rickety shanties on the hillside above the road on the outskirts of the camp. She had a son of 18 who ran off and joined the Navy, and a daughter named Irene, who was three years older than Bobby. She helped take care of him, play with him, and otherwise kept him occupied, while Mrs. Messer was busy with her quilting and other chores. Bobby would always remember Mrs. Messer, whom he and others called Aunt Sudi, as a towering authority figure, somewhat somber and stern, though not unkind. Her difficult circumstances and little formal education predisposed her to excessive religiosity, with lots of halting Bible reading and long passionate prayers at mealtime and at bedtime. 
When he got to be a big boy of nearly six, she started taking him to church with her and Irene. The church was just opposite them on the other hill, beyond the creek and the railroad track, but below the road, which was on the side of the hill there. The church was an undistinguished one-room frame structure mounted rather precariously appearing down below the road on the rather steep hill. To Bobby, it was a strange and noisy place where the people would work themselves into a frenzy and would start shouting with their eyes shut and their arms up in the air and talking, saying words he couldn't understand. And they would dance around sometimes and fall to the floor where they shook, quivered, and sweated a lot. At first, he was startled by these goings-on, thinking that people were dying or maybe crazy. "'What's wrong with them, Aunt Sooty?' he asked, tugging at her sleeve. She leaned over and whispered to him, "'It's religion, son. The Spirit of the Lord is moving them.' "'The what?' "'Just hush up and watch and listen. You'll understand it later, when you get older.' "'How much older?' "'Shh!' But he never did understand it, and he didn't really care for it much either. The last time Mrs. Messer took him to church, the preacher and some other people were up in front of the room on a raised platform where the preacher stood and where they sang and played guitars and other various instruments like fiddles and mandolins. And after they got through singing and dancing and such, some people set a box on the platform up there with them. It was a fairly good-sized box with a wood frame and with wire screens on the top and sides and a trap door on the top. "'What's in that box, Aunt Sudie? Bobby whispered, tugging at her sleeve again. They got snakes in there, Bobby, she whispered back. Snakes, Bobby said, louder than a whisper, causing a few faces to glance his way. Yes, rattlers, copperheads. What are they going to do with them, Aunt Sudie? Shh, child, just watch. Bobby was confused. Aunt Sudie had always told him to stay well clear of snakes. If you come across one, you just walk way around it. And she didn't even have to tell him that, because he was quite wary of them naturally. And he couldn't understand why these people were carrying them around in that box and bringing them into this room full of people. He was sitting on the aisle next to Mrs. Messer, about two-thirds of the way back, and leaning out and craning his neck to see around the woman on the bench in front of him. What are they going to do now, Aunt Sudie? I can't see, he whispered. Ain't they afraid they'll get snake bit, Aunt Sudie? Hush, child, quit squirming. I'll explain it to you when we get home. I want to go now, Aunt Sudie. No, sit still, I said. Suddenly, someone up front let out a yell, and everybody leaped to their feet, startling Bobby. And people were standing up in front of him and all around him, and bedlam ensued as everybody made for the door. Aunt Sudie grabbed Bobby by the hand and joined the exodus, dragging him along. What happened, Aunt Sudie? What's wrong? Mrs. Messer was strangely excited. When they were safely outside in the yard, she said breathlessly, I declare, I ain't never seen nothing like that before. When the reverend reached in that box to bring out that snake, it got him a good one right in the arm, and he yelled and shook it loose, and it fell right on the floor there, right under them people's feet in the front row. She laughed nervously and looked around to make sure none of the faithful saw or heard her. The Sunday morning following the incident with the snakes, Bobby was down by the creek below the house. 
He had run across the swinging bridge a couple of times, over and back, so he could feel it bobbing up and down and swaying from side to side, even though he'd been told numerous times to stay off it when he was alone. And now he was down in the creek where the water was shallow, jumping from stone to stone. It was late summer and the water was at or near its lowest, and one could practically walk clear across the stream by choosing his path carefully and stepping from stone to stone, rather than walk across the swinging bridge. His fun was interrupted by a shrill voice calling from the house he shared with Aunt Sudi and Irene. Bobby, followed by a pause, then, Bobby, you get up here right now, young man. He recognized Aunt Sudi's shrill voice, but he ignored her and went on playing in the water. Mrs. Messer couldn't see him because of intervening bushes and trees along the bank. Now he had rolled his pants leg up and was waiting, turning over rocks, looking for crawdads. But all the while his mind was occupied with weightier issues. Bobby would be six years old in a few days, and he had been told that he had to start school in the first grade, and he was having misgivings about it. He didn't much like the idea of being cooped up in a schoolhouse all day. As it was, he spent most of his waking hours outside playing and exploring, except for the time he spent eating and the time he spent with Irene in the evening during the school year, when she told him what she had learned that day. Irene had already taught him the ABCs and his numbers, and she had even already taught him to read out of her first and second grade readers. She would be in the third grade when school started. As Bobby saw it, what else was there except reading a lot more stuff? He could do that. She could teach him what he needed to know as he went along. There was no need for him to have to sit in that school uh, on those hard seats all day long and listen to the teacher talk and make him do things he probably wouldn't want to do. Irene had taken him to see the one-room schoolhouse once. Bobby was not impressed. It was about half a mile away in the edge of the woods at the mouth of the Long Branch Hollow. Bobby had to decide whether to submit to this uncertain, scary future, which involved giving up his freedom and everything, and sit in that room all day, or whether to run away. He had mixed feelings about it, since he liked to learn new things, but he liked doing it with his picture books from the bookmobile and from Irene teaching him. Bobby, didn't you hear Mama calling you? Bobby whirled around. It was Irene, her hands on her hips, glaring at him. It's time to get ready for church, Bobby. And what are you doing down here wading around in the creek water, anyway? Did Mama tell you it was dog days and you can get polio? I forgot. What's polio, anyhow? It's a horrid disease, that's what... That's all I know. Come on, let's go. Mama is waiting, and she's mad you ignored her calling you. I'm not going to church with her. Church was the second issue he had been pondering, which required a decision. Why not? I don't want to, that's why. You don't want to? Well, Mama won't allow that. You have to go, so you won't grow up to be a heathen. She'll take a keen switch to you, boy. She better not. I'll run away. I'll go stay with my daddy. Humph, he'll just bring you back. Well, why don't you want to go? They're crazy. Who? The people over there at church. They play with snakes. The man stuck his hand in a box of snakes and one bit him. Oh, you're afraid of the snakes. Well, there won't be no snakes there today. The preacher hasn't healed up yet. Somebody else will preach today. That's what Mama said. I don't care. I didn't say I was afraid of snakes. I said the people was crazy. 
Well, I have to admit that does seem a bit crazy. I'm not never sticking my hand in no box of snakes. Me neither, if you want to know the truth, Irene said, thoughtfully. Then, if I tell Mama what you said, she'll come after you with that keen switch. You remember what that's like, don't you? If she does, I'll run away. I'm already going to do it anyway. Why? I'm not going to sit in that schoolhouse all day long. Well, what if I go tell Mama that you don't want to go to church today because you're not feeling good, and that I will stay home with you, and then we can talk about all this and figure it out, okay? I won't go home till she leaves. All right, I'll wait for you at home after she leaves for church, if she's of a mind to do it. Now, get out of that water. When Bobby saw Aunt Sudie walking across the swinging bridge alone, he went home where, heeded by the wise counsel of Irene, he arrived at two decisions. He would go to school, but he would not go to church. Mrs. Messer reported Bobby's conduct and attitude to his father, who, being a drinking and card-playing man, and not very religious himself, thought the entire matter was funny. And so Bobby began the process of thinking for himself. As it turned out, he adjusted quickly to the classroom and to school in general. He enjoyed playing dodgeball in the schoolyard during recess, and he liked his teacher, Mr. Wilson. And during his time at Long Branch Elementary School, he excelled in his studies. He also began the process of becoming an enthusiastic reader of books of all manner and description. Mr. Wilson commented to Irene one day as he patted Bobby on the head and smiled at him, Our little friend here absorbs knowledge like a sponge. Bobby's primary interactions with his father during his early years was their Saturday morning trips on the bus to town where they would have sodas or banana splits at the drugstore and go to moving picture shows at both the town's theaters. Sometimes his father would buy him a toy or an article of clothing or they would find some other diversion to fill in the day. One of their favorite activities was prowling through the war surplus junk store looking for treasures. They always returned home late at night, and when he was a little tyke, he would go to sleep on his father's lap. When he got to be a big boy, he liked to sit in the very first row across from the bus driver and pretend he was driving the bus. It was from the movies, the westerns in particular, that Bobby's value system began to take root, where the bad guys got punished and the good guys came out on top. That made sense to him, and he decided that he would be a good guy. We're still in Chapter 19 in Winds of Wyoming, and the heroine, Kate, is still in the hospital. But this scene begins with um, two of her adversaries. Tara dropped into the booth and reached across the table to grasp Ramsey's hand with both of hers. The stars have aligned, Jer. The cards fell into place. The pot at the end of the rainbow is filled with gold, and every ounce belongs to us. She practically danced on the seat. He scowled and jerked his hand back. What are you blathering about? He didn't know why he'd agreed to meet her. She hadn't bothered to show up for their last meeting. She giggled. I had the most wonderful day, and you can't ruin it, Mr. Sourpuss. The sparkle in her eyes and the glow in her cheeks galled him. She'd evidently hit pay dirt, but he hated how she manipulated everything so she appeared to be in charge. 
while he paced his motel room floor with nothing to do but wait for her harebrained phone calls and hassle the management about the dime store air conditioner. He glared at her, unblinking. By now he knew his silence scared her more than his words. He was confident she couldn't contain her news for long. She pulled a pack of cigarettes and a lighter from her purse. Don't act so smug. You're dying to hear what I have to say. He tapped ashes from a cigarette into the ashtray. She leaned close. Your jailbird friend is in the hospital. His mouth flew open. Hospital? Yesterday, broken leg. She lit the cigarette. How? She was chasing after my fiancé on a horse. It threw her. She sneered. The tramp deserved it. His gaze dropped to Tara's left hand and the small pearl on her ring finger. You never told me you're engaged. Well, I am, to Michael Duncan, owner of the Whispering Pines Guest Ranch. She fingered the ring. This is just a promise ring. My real ring is coming soon. It was a custom order, very expensive, thousands of dollars. He picked up a barbecued chicken wing, took a bite, and spoke around the meat. Duncan, a tall guy? Uh Uh-huh. You know him? I've seen him. He could feel his blood pressure rising. The slut? He knew that was who Nielsen was with the other night. She was always whoring around. He'd waited an hour and a half at the bar for the redhead before returning to the cabin. But when people started scurrying around, packing horses for some kind of midnight trail ride, he'd given up and gone back to the motel. He forced himself to focus. So that's why you want to get rid of Nielsen. She's after your man. Well, wouldn't you feel the same way? Of course. In fact, if I see your fiancé around mine again, they'll both pay. She grabbed the table edge. This is not about Michael, Jerry. It's about your bimbo who happens to be flat on her back in a Rollins hospital. All we have to do is borrow some scrubs, snitch a gurney, and sneak into her room. You can shoot her up with that psycho dope you brag about, and we'll get her out. Then the two of you can head back where you came from. She leaned forward again, butterflies bulging, her voice a whisper. Even though she's as helpless as a dead rat, she still has her big mouth. We'll need a washcloth or something to stuff in it and and some duct tape. And then, ignoring Tara's prattle, Ramsey lit another cigarette and gazed at an elk head on the wall. Maybe he should visit Nielsen. Find out how long she'd be in the hospital. Check the layout. Calculate the timing. This was way too easy. He had to be careful. Things were happening fast. If the two women got into a cat fight, as he'd seen so often in the prison yard, he'd have a huge mess on his hands. He planned to dump the redhead, but first he needed her to help him get Nielsen out of the hospital. He checked her butterflies again. Good job, Sandra. I'll buy you another drink. She started to speak, but he cut her off. You're like a real detective, a private eye, like in the movies or on TV. Not knowing what else to say, he stopped. He hadn't had much sweet-talking practice. Pleased with her 25 laps through three hallways and around the nurse's station, Kate crawled into bed without assistance. She fell onto the pillow with a guilty sigh. Daytime naps had never been permitted in prison. She faced away from the door and slid the covers over her shoulders. 
Floating in a pre-sleep limbo, she smelled the aftershave before she heard the voice. You can't fool me, Nielsen. I know you're awake. Her breath caught in her throat, and she prayed the words emanated from a nightmare. Ramsay caressed her shoulder. Just think of it as bed check, sweetheart. I bet hospital hanky-panky is even better than prison hanky-panky. She flipped around, get out, and reached for the call box. He ripped the box off the bed sheet. She grabbed for it but missed. Holding the box high, he chastised her. When will you ever learn? I'm always at least one step ahead of you, baby. He leaned closer. The smell of brute fused with bad breath and booze made her choke. You owe me, Nielsen, he said. Nose to nose, he railed at her. You killed my baby and got me fired. I'm taking you back to Pennsylvania to make more Ramses. To make more Ramses? She glared at him. You're a deranged imbecile. He straightened. I told you not to fancy talk me. She would not let him have the upper hand. They were no longer at Patterson. Imbecile means fool. That's a little four-letter word. It also means idiot, which is a big five-letter word. Do you get the picture, imbecile? She spat the word at him. He backhanded her, shut your stupid mouth. She jabbed her fingernails into his wrist with one hand and tried to pry the call box with the other. He jerked away, but she held on, ignoring the throb in her leg. My, my, my. The voice was masculine. What do we have here? Ramsey cursed and ripped his wrist from her grasp. Kate dropped onto her pillow, call box in hand. Three ramrod straight men, one in a dark blue uniform and two in tan, stood just inside the doorway, hands on their guns. Dread seeped through her like an oil spill, coating, suffocating, drowning every fiber, every cell of her being. They would take her to prison in a wheelchair. The man in blue hooked his thumbs into his belt. If it isn't our good buddy from Pennsylvania, now we can add assaulting helpless hospital patients to your list of offenses. Ramsey glared at him. I ain't done nothing wrong, Rhodes. Kate pushed herself upright. One of the officers in tan turned to Chief Rhodes. You know him? Gerald Ramsey's recently spent some time in our facility. When I saw his truck outside, I knew trouble was brewing. You after him, deputy? We're here to question Miss Nielsen, the deputy motioned to the other officer. Cuff him, then read him his rights and take him to the car. Ramsey swore, grabbed Kate's shoulders, and yanked her in front of him. She clawed at the sheets, trying to get a grip on something, anything. Then she saw the guns aimed at them and froze, not daring to breathe. Let her go, the deputy's growl made the hair on Kate's neck rise. I'm walking out of here, Ramsey said, and taking her with me. Rhodes whipped a second weapon from a holster attached to the left side of his duty belt. Ever been tased, Ramsey? No, Ramsey thrust Kate aside and raised his hands. Don't tase me. Kate fought to regain her balance, remembering the night he'd stuck into her cell, too upset for sex. His training that day had included a first-hand lesson on the power of a taser gun. He evidently hadn't forgotten. Place your hands on your head. Walk slowly toward us. Veins bulging from his forehead and neck, Ramsey stepped forward. He bumped the bed with his hip. I'll be back. The police chief followed the deputy and Ramsey out of the room. Kate buried her face in her pillow. Freedom was worse than jail. She was forever running, from Ramsey, from the law, from her past. She'd never be safe. 
Suddenly, she was crying harder than she'd ever cried in her life. The dam of her self-control irrevocably breached. Though she heard the sheriff call her name, she could not respond. Then another male voice, Dr. Walker's. What are you doing to my patient? Deputy Johnson and I discovered an altercation in progress, said the sheriff. He removed the assailant. I stayed behind to get a report from Miss Nielsen. Kate felt a hand on her back and rolled away from it. It's okay, sweetie. This time she heard a woman's voice. He's gone. Kate turned her head. The nurse handed her a pill before pouring a glass of water from the bedside pitcher. The meds will help. Kate choked down the pill and curled into a fetal position, her injured leg straight. Still crying, she pulled the blanket over her head. The doctor sounded determined. You'll have to get your report another time. I can't allow you to traumatize my patient any further. Please leave. I'm not planning to traumatize her. Dr. Walker's voice deepened. Do you plan to lock up the attacker? Or should we put the entire hospital on alert? We're jailing him. Good. Now leave so I can take care of my patient. Kate helped Manuel drag a gunny sack filled with squirming weasels into the forest, followed by Tramp. The bloody dog growled ferociously at the hundreds of yellow eyes that peered at them between the tree trunks. Then Tara stepped onto the path and threatened to tell Mike about their illegal activity just as Ramsey slipped behind Kate and squeezed her throat. But blood spurted from Trudy's neck, not hers. The calf disappeared and Kate found herself walking toward Pastor Chuck and Ramsey. Wilted wildflowers grasped above her bulging belly. Sickened by the gleam of triumph on Ramsey's face, Kate awoke in a panic. She couldn't, she wouldn't marry him. She turned onto her side, bunching the pillow under her neck. But if she didn't marry him, he'd do everything in his power to ensure she returned to prison, possibly for the rest of her life. Both options were worse than death. We're back with Treasure Island. I'm going to read just a little bit from last time. And with a dreadful oath, he stumbled off, plowed down the sand, was helped across the stockade after four or five failures by the man with the flag of truce, and disappeared in an instant afterwards among the trees. I was talking about Silver. As soon as Silver disappeared, the captain, who had been closely watching him, turned towards the interior of the house and found not a man of us at his post, but Gray. It was the first time we had ever seen him angry. Quarters, he roared, and then as we all slunk back to our places, Gray, he said, I'll put your name in the log. You've stood by your duty like a seaman. Mr. Trelawney, I'm surprised at you, sir. Doctor, I thought you had worn the king's coat. If that was how you served at Fontenoy, sir, you'd have been better in your berth. The doctor's watch were all back at their loopholes. The rest were busy loading the spare muskets. And everyone with a red face, you may be certain, and a flea in his ear, as the saying is. The captain looked on for a while in silence. Then he spoke. My lads, said he, I've given silver a broadside. I pitched it in red hot on purpose, and before the hour's out, as he said, 
we shall be boarded. We're outnumbered. I didn't tell you that. But we fight in shelter. And a minute ago, I should have said we fought with discipline. I've no manner of doubt that we can drub them if you choose. Then he went the rounds and saw, as he said, that all was clear. On the two short sides of the house, east and west, there were only two loopholes. On the south side, where the porch was, two again. And on the north side, five. There was a round score of muskets for the seven of us. The firewood had been built into four piles. Tables, you might say. One about the middle of each side, and on each of these tables some ammunition and four loaded muskets were laid ready to the hand of the defenders. In the middle, the cutlasses lay ranged. "'Toss out the fire!' said the captain. "'The chill is past, and we mustn't have smoke in our eyes.' The iron fire basket was carried bodily out by Mr. Trelawney, and the embers smothered among the sand. "'Hawkins hasn't had his breakfast. "'Hawkins, help yourself, and back to your post to eat it,' continued Captain Smollett. "'Lively now, my lads. You want it before you've done. "'Hunter, serve out a round of brandy to all hands.' And while this was going on, the captain completed, in his own mind, the plan of the defense. Doctor, you will take the door, he resumed. See, and don't expose yourself. Keep within, and fire through the porch. Hunter, take the east side there. Joyce, you stand by the west, my man. Mr. Trelawney, you are the best shot. You and Gray will take this long north side with the five loopholes. It's there the danger is. If they can get up to it and fire in upon us through our own ports, things would begin to look dirty. Hawkins, neither you nor I are much account at the shooting. We'll stand by to load and bear a hand. As the captain had said, the chill was past. As soon as the sun had climbed above our girdle of trees, it fell with all its force upon the clearing and drank up the vapors at a draught. Soon the sand was baking and the resin melting in the logs of the blockhouse. Jackets and coats were flung aside, shirts thrown open at the neck and rolled up to the shoulders. And we stood there, each at his post, in a fever of heat and anxiety. An hour passed away. Hang them, said the captain. This is as dull as the doldrums. Gray, whistle for a wind. And just at that moment came the first news of the attack. If you please, sir, said Joyce, if I see anyone, am I to fire? I told you so, cried the captain. Thank you, sir, returned Joyce, with the same quiet civility. Nothing followed for a time, but the remark had set us all on the alert, straining ears and eyes. The musketeers, with their pieces balanced in their hands, the captain out in the middle of the blockhouse, with his mouth very tight and a frown on his face. So some seconds passed, till suddenly Joyce whipped up his musket and fired. The report had scarcely died away ere it was repeated, and repeated from without in a scattering volley, shot behind shot, like a string of geese, from every side of the enclosure. Several bullets struck the loghouse, but not one entered. And as the smoke cleared away and vanished, the stockade and the woods around it looked as quiet and empty as before. Not a bow waved. 
Not the gleam of a musket barrel betrayed the presence of our foes. "'Did you hit your man?' asked the captain. "'No, sir,' replied Joyce. "'I believe not, sir.' "'Next best thing to tell the truth,' muttered Captain Smollett. "'Load his gun, Hawkins. "'How many should you say there were on your side, doctor?' "'I know precisely,' said Dr. Livesey. Three shots were fired on this side. "'I saw the three flashes, two close together, one farther to the west.' Three, repeated the captain. "'And how many on yours, Mr. Trelawney?' "'But this was not so easily answered. "'There had come many from the north, seven by the squire's computation, eight or nine, according to Gray. "'From the east and west only a single shot had been fired. "'It was plain, therefore, that the attack would be developed from the north "'and that on the other three sides we were only to be annoyed by a show of hostilities.' But Captain Smollett made no change in his arrangements. If the mutineers succeeded in crossing the stockade, he argued, they would take possession of any unprotected loophole and shoot us down like rats in our own stronghold. Nor had we much time left for us for thought. Suddenly, with a loud huzzah, a little cloud of pirates leaped from the woods on the north side and ran straight on the stockade. At the same moment, the fire was once more opened from the woods, and a rifle ball sang through the doorway and knocked the doctor's musket into bits. The boarders swarmed over the fence like monkeys. Squire and Gray fired again, and yet again, three men fell, one forwards into the enclosure, two back on the outside. But of these, one was evidently more frightened than hurt, for he was on his feet again in a crack and instantly disappeared among the trees. Two had bit the dust, one had fled, four had made good their footing inside our defenses, while from the shelter of the woods seven or eight men, each evidently supplied with several muskets, kept up a hot, though useless, fire on the log house. The four who had boarded made straight before them for the building, shouting as they ran, and the men among the trees shouted back to encourage them. Several shots were fired, but such was the hurry of the marksmen, not one appears to have taken effect. In a moment the four pirates had swarmed up the mound and were upon us. The head of Job Anderson, the boatswain, appeared at the middle loophole. Adam, all hands, all hands, he roared in a voice of thunder. At the same moment another pirate grasped Hunter's musket by the muzzle, wrenched it from his hands, plucked it through the loophole, and with one stunning blow laid the poor fellow senseless on the floor. Meanwhile a third, running unharmed all around the house, appeared suddenly in the doorway and fell with his cutlass on the doctor. Our position was utterly reversed. A moment since we were firing, under cover, at an exposed enemy. Now it was we who lay uncovered and could not return a blow. The log house was full of smoke, to which we owed our comparative safety. Cries in confusion, the flashes and reports of pistol shots, and one loud groan rang in my ears. Out, lads, out, and fight em in the open. Cutlasses, cried the captain. I snatched a cutlass from the pile, and someone at the same time, snatching another, gave me a cut across the knuckles, which I hardly felt. I dashed out of the door, into the clear sunlight, Someone was close behind, I knew not whom. Right in front, the doctor was pursuing his assailant down the hill, and just as my eyes fell upon him, 
beat down his guard and sent him sprawling on his back with a great slash across the face. "'Round the house, lads!' "'Round the house!' cried the captain, and even in the hurly-burly I perceived a change in his voice. Mechanically I obeyed, turned eastwards, and with my cutlass raised ran round the corner of the house. Next moment I was face to face with Anderson. He roared aloud, and his hanger went up above his head, flashing in the sunlight. I had not time to be afraid, but as the blow still hung impending, leaped in a trice upon one side, and missing my foot in the soft sand, rolled headlong down the slope. When I had first sallied from the door, the other mutineers had been already swarming up the palisade to make an end of us. One man in a red nightcap, with his cutlass in his mouth, had even got upon the top and thrown a leg across. Well, so assured had been the interval, that when I found my feet again, all was in the same posture— the fellow with the red nightcap still halfway over, another still just showing his head above the top of the stockade. And yet, in this breath of time, the fight was over, and the victory was ours. Gray, following close behind me, had cut down the big boatswain ere he had time to recover from his last blow. Another had been shot at a loophole in the very act of firing into the house, and now lay in agony, the pistol still smoking in his hand. A third, as I had seen, the doctor had disposed of at a blow. Of the four who had scaled the palisade, only one remained unaccounted for, and he, having left his cutlass on the field, was now clamoring out again with the fear of death upon him. Fire! Fire from the house! cried the doctor. And you, lads, back into cover! But his words were unheeded. No shot was fired and the last boarder made good his escape and disappeared with the rest into the wood. In three seconds, nothing remained of the attacking party but the five who had fallen, four on the inside and one on the outside of the palisade. The doctor and Gray and I ran full speed for shelter. The survivors would soon be back where they had left their muskets, and at any moment the fire might recommence. The house was by this time somewhat cleared of smoke, and we saw at a glance the price we had paid for victory. Hunter lay beside his loophole, stunned. Joyce, by his, shot through the head, never to move again. While right in the center, the squire was supporting the captain, one as pale as the other. "'The captain's wounded,' said Mr. Trelawney. "'Have they run?' asked Mr. Smollett. "'All that could, you may be bound,' returned the doctor." but there's five of them that will never run again. Five, cried the captain. Come, that's better. Five against three leaves us four to nine. That's better odds than we had at starting. We were seven to nineteen then, or thought we were, and that's as bad to bear. The mutineers were soon only eight in number, for the man shot by Mr. Trelawney on board the schooner died that same evening of his wound. But this was, of course, not known till after. By the faithful party. We're going to finish off with some kid chuckles. Five-year-old Toby came into the kitchen gently cradling a baby doll, and he said, Mom, do you know she's adopted to me? So I can keep her now. But Elisa might win her back later. <laughs> <laughs>
And two-year-old Brady asked, Why snow? Toby enthusiastically responded, To play in. And later, he told us that he can fly with his robe. He wanted us to take him up in an airplane so he could jump out and float down in his robe. And um, one time when my parents couldn't make it through a snowstorm to visit us, Toby prayed, Please make a path so Grandma and Grandpa can come to see us. Then he asked, How does God blow with his power to make a path? Brady answered, Magic monster. (laughs) Toby replied, No, God is the Lord, the Holy Spirit, and the King, the biggest King. Brady said, Uncle Roger. Toby said, No, Uncle Roger is not God. He's not in heaven. Brady said, Roger, just Roger. So, <laughs> so Roger's a pretty good guy, but I think Toby got Brady all straightened out on that one. And just a couple more. Brady calls himself Brady Bug Monster. And Toby one night said, My eyebrows are tired. So is the rest of my body. And I think we all know how that feels. Well, that does it for this podcast. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckyliles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckyliles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.